1935, where does the time go? Sometimes I wonder if I'll have enough time to get everything done that I want to in this life. Do you ever feel that way? That you might run out of time before you've gotten everything you want to do done? Oh, who would have thought a girl coming from where I came from would end up trotting in double harness with Charles M. Russell and that we'd work together to leave a legacy of art and stories that nobody else ever could. Charlie believed that the West was America's special legacy, and he didn't want anyone to forget it, just like I don't want anybody to forget Charlie. We came from such different places. Charlie was born and raised in St. Louis to a, a large, prosperous family. He had anything he ever wanted in his life, and what he wanted was to go West and see what was left of the West that he'd grown up listening to stories uh, about when, when he was uh, there in St. Louis. He, it was his dream to come west. Now, I was born on a farm in Kentucky, and when I was about 10 years old, my stepfather brought my mother and stepsister and me to Montana, and a few years later, when my mother died, my stepfather moved on and left me behind. So there I was. I was 15 years old, and, and I didn't have anywhere to go, and that was not my dream. But, well, sometimes you just have to stick with your story and see how it comes out. Now, who would have thought two people from such different places would ever meet? But I got a job for the Roberts family over in Cascade. And one night, Mr. Roberts said, Now, Nancy, we have a friend coming for supper. His name is Charlie Russell, and he's an artist. <laughs> I didn't know much about art coming from where I came from. But, well, when he came that night for supper, it wasn't about art. I took one look at those blue eyes of his, and, well, after supper, he asked if he could come calling. Of course, I said yes, and, and uh, people said it would be a very poor match. Charlie Russell, he'd been in Montana for, for many years, coming and going as a cowboy, drifting as he pleased. What sort of a husband would he make? And me, coming from so little, what, what sort of a wife could I possibly make for a man who wanted to go places in his life. <laughs> Nevertheless, we were married in 1896 in the front parlor of the Roberts home. He never looked back. Charlie liked to refer to uh, things with cowboy terms, and he called marriage being neck. Now that's where you tie a rope around the neck of a wild horse, and you tie the other end of the rope around the neck of a tame horse, and the tame horse teaches the wild horse some manners. It's the only way to hold a bunch quitter, he would say. And I don't know which one of us he thought would quit the bunch, but neither of us ever did. And he told a friend he hoped the rope would never choke or break. So there we were. Charlie wanted to make his living as an artist, but he had no idea how to do that, and he wasn't inclined to learn. I, I had no real experience of the world, but I had ambition enough for both of us. So. The first thing we did, we moved from Cascade to Great Falls, built a home there, and then a few years later, a studio. Still, Charlie's art wasn't taken off the way I believed it ought to. He was known in Montana. Then we took a trip to New York City, and that changed everything. Oh, New York City in those days was the center of the art world, and people in the East couldn't get enough of stories about the West. 
And who better to tell those stories than Charlie Russell? And we've been hearing that if Charlie wanted to get his art known and seen, he should go to New York, meet those publishers and galleries where he, he could get the word out about his talent and his storytelling. We went to New York. Charlie found uh, friends and artists that he could learn from. What was I doing? I was walking the streets in New York with paintings under my arms, from gallery to publisher to gallery to publisher, trying to figure out the art business. And eventually, I did. I uh, got pretty good at negotiating for Charlie's, uh, the prices that I thought Charlie deserved for his art. In fact, a friend of ours said years later that no matter what kind of gloves Nancy's wearing when she's doing her business, they contain a pair of brass knobs. <laughs> About the time we went to New York City, we bought land on Lake McDonald, and everything started to come together for Charlie, what he learned there, and then having access to the natural world like he did. Charlie had read the work of George Bird Grinnell and James Schultz, um, people, uh, naturalists, who'd come west and looked at northwest Montana back when it was a forest reserve, mostly known to prospectors and miners and Native American people. I, it wasn't very easy to get here in those days. But at the time that Charlie and I bought land on Lake McDonald, there was a movement to set aside some of this land for national parks. And John Muir himself wrote a book in 1901. He said, thousands of tired, nerve-shaken, Overcivilized people are beginning to realize the necessity of wilderness. Spend a month, he said, at least in this precious reserve. Time will not be taken from your life. In fact, rather than shortening it, it will lengthen it and make you truly immortal. Now, I don't know if going to a national park is and becoming immortal is what you would imagine getting from the experience. But I think we can all agree that there's something special about being in the natural world, and that's what we realized about Charlie. When we were in New York, we thought that if he's going to take his career to the heights that it deserved to go to, he'd have to travel. He'd have to be around lots of people and crowds and cities and such, and he didn't like that. But if he had a place that was special and separate, where he could immerse himself in the natural world and get his inspiration back together. He could balance the two worlds, and that's exactly what he did for the rest of his life. We had uh, visited Lake McDonald, 1901, I believe, and uh, then we bought land on the shores there in 1905, built our cabin in 1906, and then we never missed a summer at Lake McDonald. Everybody here knows what it's like when you pack up to go on a holiday. You race around and try to remember everything you could possibly want for the time that's coming. And we not only had to bring our personal belongings for a summer on the lake, but also all of Charlie's art supplies and, and all of the things that he would need to continue to create art while he was at Lake McDonald. We took the train from Great Falls, where we were living at the time, to Shelby and then to Belton, there were no uh, roads, and there was just a one-track road to Apcar, and it was a wagon road. We'd get into that wagon, load all of our things in. It was only this wide. If you were sitting up on top, you could reach out and pull moss off the trees. 
and the needles and leaves that were on the ground, why, you couldn't even hear the horses clip-clopping through there. It was this muffled sound. And that road, that road is the main entrance to West Glacier today. Now, once we got to Abgar, there were no more roads after that. People who were going to the lodge up on the east side took a steam-powered launch, but our place on the west side was about a quarter of a mile up, and we took a little rowboat. And when we first saw our land there, well, why we were sold, a steep, steep slope up from the lake shore. And when they built the cabin, Charlie did not want them to cut down any more trees than they needed to, so the porch there is wrapped around three big cedars, and the sunlight coming through the pines and the lake sparkling out in front. And when you get down to the lake shore itself, looking across the lake and seeing the mountains on the other side, well, this was truly a place for Charlie to renew all of the spirit that he needed to. And of course, visitors, oh my, friends and family would come, well-known artists and authors visited us, Sometimes, in the early morning, an Indian, sitting on the porch, waiting for Charlie to come out. The presence of Indians was common in the parks in those days at the train depots and the lodges and stuff, mostly for the pleasure of the tourists. But for Charlie, there was a special, special visit. Charlie spent a season with the Blood Indians when he first came to Montana. And he learned not only about their their uh, lifestyle and their, their uh, customs and such on the surface, but he also learned about the way they looked at the world, how they saw the natural world as not separate from the rest of experience as a human, but as part of it. And he adopted that. And so many of his stories are told from the point of view of the Native people. It was an important relationship for him. <laughs> Two of them would sit there on the deck. Charlie spoke uh, sign language very well, but they didn't even do that. They might smoke and, and just come in. The Indian would get up and walk off. That was special for Charlie. Oh, and then uh, the natural world was our entertainment. When we were at Lake McDonald, we'd rent horses, and we'd go to Sparrow Glacier or Grinnell Glacier. The last part of those climbs was done on foot. We would all rope together and climb up over the ice. Or there was a bubble spring near our cabin. It wasn't always active, but sometimes from the blue clay bottom, big bubbles, as big as teacups, would come to the surface. There's just so much, so much to experience there. And Charlie's art began to flourish. In 1911, we went back to New York City for Charlie's first big exhibit there, The West That Is Past. There was a two-page interview with Charles M. Russell in the New York paper. One reviewer wrote about Charlie's work. He said that Charlie Russell has a big heart, and he paints it across the canvas such that the viewer can smell the incense of the prairie. And in that same article, Charlie was compared to Frederick Remington, who you may recognize that name, a well-known Western illustrator, but Remington had been gone for two years. So here's Charlie stepping into his place. Oh, we had arrived. And it came fast after that. Montana had a new state house, and they wanted a mural for the House of Representatives chamber, and Charlie said, if you want, Angels and cherubs flitting through the sky while you hire one of those Eastern artists. 
But if you want history, you hire me. And they did. And there hangs his masterpiece. Lewis and Clark meeting the Indians of Ross's home. And if you've seen it, you'll see what I was talking about, that story. Well, Lewis and Clark are sort of there up in the corner, looking for uh, horses and food and probably some directions at that point. But uh, the Indians are telling that story one of the most outstanding days I think they could have imagined up until that point. In 1912, we went to Calgary, to the first Calgary stampede. And of the 27 pictures that I had, I sold over half of them. Some of them went to Canada, and the rest were in this country, and a few <coughs> went to England. And in 1914, we went to Europe, to London, to the Doré Gallery for an exhibit there. No matter where Charlie went, here or abroad, reviewers said the same thing. This artist has a unique genius for painting motion such that the viewer looking at the picture could imagine that the whole thing will come alive right before their eyes. This artist has truly lived the things that he's painting about. And in 1915, well, we were back in Glacier Park for the summer, and that was a particularly memorable summer. Let me see if I can remember how Ms. Reinhardt put it in her book. If you are normal and philosophical, if you love your country, if you like bacon or will eat it anyway, if you are willing to learn just how little you count in the eternal scheme of things, if you are prepared, at least for the first day or two, to locate every muscle in your body and a few others that have crept in. Go west and ride the Rocky Mountains and save your soul. Miss <laughs> Reinhardt was on the trip in 1915. Howard Eaton, a dude wrangler who took, <coughs> took pack trips through all sorts of natural worlds in the west, he planned a big pack trip from Glacier Park. And of course, if he's going to have a great writer on there to, to write, and uh, publicize this beautiful place for the railroads, and this artist who was also well known as a storyteller. Well, there were 42 of us, all on horseback, with as many or more pack animals, 300 miles through the park, over six mountain passes. And with a caravan of that size, there wasn't much chance we were going to see any wildlife. <laughs> but we saw a country from the perspective of high mountain peaks that, well, it took your breath away. There was a photographer on that trip as well. He didn't know too much about being in the woods. He was a city boy, but uh, he was dedicated to taking as many photographs as he could. So uh, when we stopped for lunch one day, he got off his horse, took all his camera equipment, went off and set up for a, a photograph, and then when the rest of the company moved on after the lunch break was over, well, he'd forgotten to tie his horse up. So his horse just moved on with the company and left him there. He had to walk 20 miles through bear country carrying that heavy camera equipment. I can't imagine how scared he must have been, but true to the nature of an artist, when he stumbled into camp that night, he all smiles and he says, I got the picture. <laughs> well, after the 20s arrived, we had um, we'd been invited repeatedly to California. Will Rogers, a friend that Charlie met at that um, 
trip to New York in 1904, way back when neither of them were well known. He was well known like Charlie. He was making moving pictures at a place called Hollywood. And he'd been after us to come visit. So we did. 1920. Charlie and I have never seen a place like Southern California. And Charlie loved going on those movie sets. Nancy said, I never saw anything like it. Someone yells, action. And a cowboy comes riding up over a hill, gets shot off his horse, gets up, gets onto his horse, does it again, and then does it again, and then does it again until someone yells, cut. He thought that moving pictures would replace art, and the people wouldn't want paintings anymore. I'm very glad that he was wrong about that. <coughs> 1926 rolled around. Charlie was slowing down. Actually, he was getting ill. We were sort of running out of time is what we were. We'd started building a uh, studio, a gallery onto the studio in Great Falls, and building a home in, in Pasadena. We'd spent our winters there. Montana winters were getting to be a little too much for both of us. So we started building a place in Pasadena. And yet, uh, Charlie was quite ill that summer. Goiter, it was. Not such a big deal if you have it taken care of, but Charlie didn't like hospitals and he didn't like doctors. So he drug his feet about having it taken care of. And finally that summer, we went to the Mayo Clinic in uh, Minnesota, and they had no trouble with the surgery for the goiter. It was uh, successful. But the doctors took me aside and told me that Charlie's heart was damaged and that he didn't have very long to live. And then they took Charlie aside and told him the same thing. And we each told the doctors not to tell the other one. <laughs> so we left there thinking we each knew something that the other one didn't. Oh, when I think back to that Sunday and the life that we'd had together, Charlie always said that uh, Nancy is the business and I am the creative. Nancy lives for tomorrow, I live for yesterday. So between us, we have a pretty good deal. <laughs> he was right. Oh, I could do everything. I could do the business. I did the copyrights and the shipping and the framing and the negotiations and the exhibits and all of our domestic activities. I, I was in charge of the world to keep it away from Charlie so that he could do the art. But I could not be with him in his own particular world. He had a special way of going deep inside of himself where he kept all of his stories and his imagination. And then when he was ready, those stories would spill out onto the canvas. Some of my favorite memories of being in Great Falls and sitting in the parlor in the evening. Charlie with a pad and pencil just working out some idea, not saying anything. And then that idea would spring to life in the studio. I could not believe him in that world, and he was content to be there by himself. Charlie died in October of 1926. Now, we had a book ready to come out, Trails Plowed Under, a collection of Charlie's stories, and he had worked that spring on illustrations, brand new illustrations for those stories. 
And when the book came out, the, the introduction was written by Will Rogers, who knew Charlie about as well as anybody. And he wrote that introduction as if he was writing a, a letter to Charlie. Old timer, he wrote, you don't know how much we miss you. We're just hanging on here as long as we can. We don't know why. We know it's better where you are. Maybe it's because we haven't done anything that will live after we are gone. Charlie, it's done. We'll live for generations to come. Maybe John Muir was right. All that inspiration from the natural world in the, in the parks did make Charlie immortal. I shouldn't have worried, although I did. There was no lack of interest in his art, and sales were still strong. But I couldn't quite understand that he was never coming back. And his understanding smile to approve of my efforts, when I'll admit a lot of people didn't, was one of my greatest losses. When Charlie died, George Bird Grinnell said that no man has carved so great a niche in the world of art and one equally grand in the field of history. And Joseph Shaw, himself an accomplished Western artist, said that Charlie's paintings will remain a record of inestimable value and truth when all work of that kind in the future will have to be done from hearsay and literature and photographs. And a, a friend of uh, Charlie's right there in Glacier Park, an old Wrangler friend of him, said that Charlie Russell is the most beloved man that Montana ever produced, as much a part of Glacier Park as the rugged snow-capped mountains. I think we can all agree there's something magical about the natural world and in these preserves and these parks that have been set aside. We all have the opportunity to visit and immerse ourselves and, and, and uh, soak in the inspiration that is there. Mary Roberts Reinhardt put it best in her book. The lure of high places gets in your blood. The call of the mountains is a real call. Throw off the impediments of civilization, the telephones, the silly conversations, the lies that pass for truth. Go out to the west, ride slowly so as not to startle the wild things. Nerves that have tightened for years will relax. Throw out your chest and breathe and look across green valleys to rugged peaks where mountain goats stand impassive at the edge of space. Let the summer rains fall on your upturned face and wash away all that is false and petty and cruel. Then the mountains will catch you. You will go back. The call is a real call. People give me credit for making Charlie Russell famous and wealthy, and I have done nothing noteworthy except love and support the only Charlie Russell in the world and believe in a genius that he took for granted. As I said, he, he has left something that will live for generations. And I did my part, trotting in double harness to keep him from quitting the bunch. But I believe that the world who looks at Charlie's art is Charlie's bunch. And I just kept him from wandering off. 